Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. Matthew 24, we read about the prophecy that Jesus gave concerning the end times. Now, when you read it, you might see some repetition. Was Jesus just repeating himself, or is he doing something special to teach us some deeper truths? Let's talk about that coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles. I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship ministry, Todd Talks Bible. We are finishing up part one of our study of Revelation. We have established through our study that chapters 1 through 8, verse 1, so roughly the first seven chapters of the book of Revelation, all deal with the church, the church history, and the last days of the church. We've shown that the last days of the church will have an apostate church, uh, at large, but a small, true remnant of true believers be, uh, called the Great Commission Church. We've also studied and seen that the last days of the church are running parallel to the seven seals in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 and 7. So, the last days of the church, we will go through the opening of the seven seals. Now, over the last three sessions, we've been looking at additional proofs that substantiate what we've been teaching, namely that the church's last days, the last days of the church age, are in fact the seven seals. And these are highlighted by the fifth seal, which is a worldwide persecution of Christians, and the sixth seal being the rapture. And we've looked at some of these proofs. We looked at the Feast of the Lord, which is Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, as we would know it. And we've looked how the traditional Jewish way of celebrating these feasts substantiate what we've been saying. Finally, we looked at also Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24, and how he correlated the signs of the end along with the seven seals, and how they matched up almost perfectly. Last week, we looked at some current events because of the tragedies and what was going on in our, in our society, in our nation up there at the Capitol. We looked at how different events have been uh, beginning to show up over the last few years, especially the last couple of weeks, that may give us a hint of some of the first seals beginning to be cracked, namely the rise of a worldwide government. It's possible that we're beginning to see the first indications of that now. So today, we're going to look at our fourth and final proof of what we've been studying, and that is of the last days of the church are indeed the seven seals, and that this precedes the seven-year time of Jacob's distress or God's judgment upon the earth. Now, we will go back to Matthew 24 for this last bit of proof, and we're going to look at the prophecy of Jesus, but this time we're going to be looking at a unique way he presented this truth. 
He did it in a popular form of debate at the time, a debate rhetoric known as a chiasmic argument or chiastic literature. Now, in literature and rhetoric, a chiasm was verbal repetitions to frame the main point of a debate or proof. You would say two or three points on one side, then give your main point, and then repeat your initial two or three points on the other side so that it would frame the main point that you were trying to get across in this uh, speech or in this debate that you were participating in. Now, this was real popular among the Greeks, and this is how they did a lot of their uh, presentations on proofs or discussions or debates. Now, they based the chiasms on what they called symmetry, the symmetry that they saw in nature. First and foremost was the symmetry of the human body. Now, I'm going to show you a graphic here in a second about the human body that da Vinci drew. And for those of y'all who are listening to these uh, sessions on um, various podcasts instead of watching on YouTube, I got to warn you, there's going to be a lot of graphics today, a lot of pictures that help explain the chiasm of Jesus' prophecy a lot better than just hearing me speak. So I strongly encourage you to watch this on YouTube or on one of the Facebook uh, posts that I put out and so that you can see these graphics and understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the chiasm of this prophecy of Jesus. So let's get back to the human body. Here's the picture of da Vinci's drawing of the human body. And as you can see, it's symmetrical. And the Greeks framed their chiastic arguments based on the symmetry. There's two hands, two elbows, two shoulders, but only one head. So what they would do is that they would uh, start off an argument with three or four points. Typically it was three, a hand, an elbow, a shoulder, point A, B, C. Then the fourth argument, point D, the fourth point, I should say, point D was the main point. And then they'd repeat point B, C, and A, just like the human body has that symmetry. But also, this was found in the symmetry of their architecture. Here is a famous uh, piece of architecture called the arch. Here's a little diagram that illustrates the arch. And as you know, the arch was stones fitted together that would support huge amounts of weight. It was one of the strongest architectural support systems designed. And that center stone that's highlighted in green there is called the keystone. And in literature chiasms, the center point is the keystone or the main point. So just like the center stone or the keystone keeps the arch together, the center argument or the main point that's in the middle of this symmetry would be the keystone of their argument. So that's what a chiasm is. Now let's show you how this basically works out in a thesis or in a debate. Here's a, a illustration that gets it across very well. And we'll be using this illustration throughout the rest of our discussion. You have point A, point B, point C that builds up to the main point, the keystone of analysis. And then you come back with point C, point B, point A. And sometimes the debaters of the day or people who are presenting a truth of the day, teachers and such, 
would add a little bit more to the initial point. So it would come out C2 or B2, A2. But the point is, even if they add a little bit more to their initial points, the key is that it's reflective. It shows the symmetry. And it sounds repetitious. So you have point A, point B, point C, the main point or the keystone of analysis, and then point C2, point B2, point A2. That's how it worked. And there is a chiasm in Matthew 24. And let's see how it works. In Matthew 24, if you read uh, the first three verses, you'll see that the disciples are there at the temple with Jesus. And this is the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, that was later added on to and refurbished and, and called Herod's temple, even though it was really initially built by Zerubbabel. And they were looking at all the magnificent structures and the architecture, and they asked Jesus to look at it. And he says, I'm going to tell you something. You won't see, there will come a time when there's not going to be one rock or one stone sitting upon another. It's going to be totally destroyed. Well, that was very dangerous to say. And so what happened is they went up and talked to Jesus about this truth later when no one could hear them so they wouldn't get arrested. And we've talked about this in detail in session 22a a couple weeks ago. But just as a quick review, they asked three questions. When will the second temple be destroyed or Zerubbabel or Herod's temple be destroyed? The one they were looking at. When will this temple be destroyed? Number two is what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, we illustrated this last time in session 22a, and we showed you that Jesus didn't answer the first question because uh, that temple was going to be destroyed in their lifetime, and he didn't want to give them information that would affect the way they did things in life, just like God veils things to us today so that we don't know the immediate future and maybe uh, react wrongly. So if you want to go in detail about this and see how these answers relate to the seven seals, go back to session 22a. But today we're going to just go over it briefly. I'm going to show you the pattern of this chiasm because there's some neat things that Jesus is teaching us with this chiasm. Let's look at Matthew 24, starting in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because the lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. So that is how Jesus answered their questions, or at least the first part of the answers that he gave them. And we looked at this, like I said, a couple of weeks ago. But I want to put these statements 
on the first half of the chiasm because the next part that we're going to read will finish up the chiasm. You'll see how they correspond and reflect each other. So on this illustration, you'll see that point A, he starts off with false messiahs. In Matthew 24, verses 4 through 5, he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and mislead many. So he's talking about a rise of false messiahs and how we shouldn't follow them. That's point A. Point B, he gives several events that happen. He calls them the beginning of birth pains, uh, wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes, things like that. And we've showed you how these correspond to seals one through four. This is events I like to call preliminary events. Point B is preliminary events. And again, these correspond with seals one through four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then point C, a key prophetic sign to warn people, of believers especially, of that the rapture is near, is called worldwide persecution. He talks about this in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. He says they will hand you over uh, all over the place. You will enter tribulation. And the word tribulation here, as we've already taught, is thalipsis which means persecution. So this is the worldwide persecution, and it helps drive the gospel throughout the four corners of the world. And this, of course, corresponds to the fifth seal, like we already discussed. So the main point is found in Matthew 24, verse 14b. He says this, Then the end will come. Remember, they asked him three questions. What when will the second temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? So he says, then the end will come. What end? The end of the age. So that's the main point he's going for, the end of the age. Now, that's the first half of the chiasm. What about the second half? He has to repeat it, doesn't he, if he wants to have a true chiasmic argument and show the key point or the main point of being the end of the age. And Jesus does this. See, he's not just repeating himself because he's wandering off in thought. No, he's specifically repeating certain things because this is the way uh, in that Greek culture of that time that they would show their arguments, their proofs, or their thesis and show supporting evidence, and they would repeat it to frame the main point they were getting across. So let's look at the sign of his coming. That's the next question that they asked him. What is the sign of your coming? And this is found in Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless, unless those days have been cut short, 
no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So, let's see if we can point out the different chiastic elements in this uh, chiasm that Jesus is giving us in this prophecy. First of all, point A. This well, let's let's start in the order he would have done it. He started off with point A, false messiahs. Point B, preliminary events. Point C. Uh, was worldwide persecution, and then the main point was end of the age. So here he repeats himself. He talks off about worldwide persecution, doesn't he? In Matthew 24, verses 16 through 22, he's talking about worldwide persecution. He even says that those who are in Judah shouldn't even go back to their house and get their belongings, but just leave immediately. So this is I think, matching up to the persecution that he brought in on point C uh, initially when he was working his way up to this argument. Now, point B, preliminary events. Does he mention any preliminary events? Yes, he does. Look at verse 15. What happens before the persecution that is mentioned in verses uh, 16 through 22? What is mentioned before that? He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So something happens called the abomination of desolation before the worldwide persecution. And so this is point B. This is the preliminary event. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, the abomination of desolation is mentioned in Daniel in three different occasions. It's mentioned in Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verse 11. Again, it's mentioned in Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verse 11. And when you look at it, you can see that this is a a prophecy that Daniel gave And it's kind of a, a, we find out, a double uh, prophecy, kind of a dual-fold prophecy. And it is talking about specifically a man named Antiochus Epiphanes that uh, wages war against the people of Israel. 
and he takes over Jerusalem, desecrates the temple by slaughtering a pig in there, and he stops worship to the one true God, and instead demands worship to Zeus. Now, this is an abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. And obviously, it's an abomination because a man is saying, you can't worship God anymore. Now, was this only talking about Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, if you read Daniel, you'll see that he's kind of hinting at another event way into the future with someone that we like to call, we have nicknamed the Antichrist. But it's not just Daniel saying it. Jesus himself pointed out that this was a dual prophecy. He himself says, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, you've got to understand something. A lot of people sit here and say, oh, the abomination of desolation was when the temple got destroyed. No, not necessarily. I disagree with that interpretation. I'll tell you why. He says, specifically, it's like what Daniel said. And Daniel prophesied this in 167 B.C. And he was telling the disciples, you know, 190 years later, basically, that this would be a sign of his coming. Well, did he come back in 70 A.D.? No. So obviously he was talking about something else. Well, what I think he's talking about is the stopping of worshiping the one true God and creating a false religion. Now, we've talked about this when we talked about current events last time and, and a few weeks ago. We talked about when we looked at seal number one, the rise of the worldwide government, how that would necessitate a one world religion, a false religion. And the Bible teaches that the Antichrist will tell everyone that they cannot worship the one true God anymore, and they will basically outlaw Christianity because we say there's only one way to get to heaven, that's by believing in Jesus. Instead, they will create a, a false religion, one that is universal, that all people, no matter what they believe, uh, can be participate in and think they're going to heaven. But it's just not true. And so this will be an abomination to God. Someone will stand up and stop the worshiping of the one true God. And that's what precedes the persecution. And then he closes, again, mirroring the points that he did before in a true uh, chiastic fashion. And this chiasm, he mirrors these points, and he says the last things in point A to is, again, false messiahs. And he adds a little bit more to it, just like he has on all points. He says, look, if someone says to you, the messiah's over here, don't believe them, don't go there. And he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, dead people draw all the vultures. Anybody who's declaring themselves to be the false messiah is obviously spiritually dead on the inside. And so they will have a lot of followers, a lot of these vultures coming by but it really won't be the true Son of Man. It won't be Jesus, the Messiah. So let's show this illustration about how this sums up the chiasm that Jesus is using to teach the answers to these questions the disciple had. Here it is, and you'll see that he starts off with false messiahs in Matthew 24, verse 4 through 5, preliminary events, then worldwide persecution that leads to the gospel being spread throughout the world, 
Then the end of the age, and also later the sign of his coming, he calls it. This is what we call the rapture. That's the modern word for it, the rapture. And then he finishes up the chiasm. Point C2, worldwide persecution. Point B2, preliminary events, which we already talked about how that is the abomination of desolation, stopping the worship of God. And then point A2, he ends up with false messiahs. So yes, he followed the, the chiasm exactly. And this shows that the rapture is the chief sign. But it's interesting to note that he added some things. And these things he added, these words or phrases he added, are very important because I think Jesus was using more than just this simple chiasm here, but he was going to explain even more using this chiasm. Let me explain. Think of the words abomination of desolation. We talked about how that represented Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes back in the book of Daniel and how he stopped the worship of God by slaughtering a pig in the temple. And this is mentioned again just to Refresh your memory, Daniel 9, verse 27, Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verse 11. This phrase, abomination of desolation. But Jesus makes it clear that this is also a sign relating to the end to a person that we call the Antichrist. Now, could this be someone standing in a new temple and declaring that the Jewish people must worship him? And him alone could be. If that's the case, then it requires us constructing a third temple sometime in the last days. And I used to think that would have to happen. It would have to be a, a brand new third temple. But it doesn't have to be. As I've studied more and more, I've meditated on it, and I realized the same fulfillment of this prophecy would happen if the Antichrist just showed up at Jerusalem and broke the treaty that Daniel 9 verse 27 talks about, and then just said, you can't worship God anymore. He could fulfill this prophecy that Jesus is referring to as the abomination of desolation. He could do this with whoever this world leader is by just declaring himself to be God and no one else can be worshiped. Not the one true God, only this world leader. So that would fulfill it. But then there's a second phrase that Jesus brings up, and it's the word elect. Now, a lot of people get upset by this word elect. Some people say it only refers to Jewish people. And then some people say it only refers to Christians. And it colors their interpretation of this passage, not to mention that they get in fights with each other. and We should never get in arguments and fights over prophecy. We should let the Holy Spirit show us the different interpretations and, and talk about it in a fun way to encourage each other. But originally, let's look at this term, the elect. Uh, electos is where it comes from. Eclectos in the Greek. Uh, originally, it's a military term and refers to someone chosen for a particular assignment. In other words, a soldier in the military chosen for a special assignment. Now, in the vast majority of the New Testament, this word, eclectos, refers, refers to believers. In Matthew 22, verse 14, Jesus is talking about believers and how people get saved. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, many are called to say, hey, come, come and get saved. 
but only a few actually choose to believe in Jesus. And they are called the, the chosen few, the eclectos, those for a special assignment. And we all know what the special assignment is. We're supposed to spread the gospel. But it's more than just believers in the New Testament that uses this word. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, it refers to the elect angels. Same word, eclectos, but it's talking about angels. In 1 Peter 2, verse 6, it refers to Christ. Peter says Christ is the cornerstone, elect and precious. It's the same word, eclectos, elect, chosen for a particular assignment. And Jesus was, wasn't he? He was chosen to be the Messiah, to die on the cross and save us from our sins. In the book of 2 John, it refers to the universal church, but also smaller churches. The same word, elect, refers to the universal church, the elect lady, meaning the universal church, but also the elect sisters of this church. In other words, the smaller churches. Now, Jesus refers to the elect uh, three different times in this prophecy. Three different times in his prophecy. And this is in Matthew 24, starting in verse 22, 24, and 31. Now, the first time he refers to it is talking about the Jewish people. It's talking about those in Judea, right after this abomination of desolation. But in verse 31, it's talking about it in the language of uh, everyone being gathered up together. The elect being gathered, which is the rapture. Why is he doing that? Well, I think he's doing it for two reasons. He's trying to show that this prophecy is for more than just the Jewish people. And it's also for more than just the Gentile people. He is creating a uh, time chiasm. In other words, a chiasm that's used to show two uh time periods of what happens that centers around a certain event that we call the rapture. Let's look at it in this portrayal, and you'll see what I'm saying. He starts off talking about false messiahs, and then the preliminary events that we know are the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, what Jesus called the birth pains, the beginning of birth pains. Then he talked about worldwide persecution of Christians. And then the end of the age. And later he refers to it as the sign of his coming. This is the rapture, the chief sign. And then he finishes up this chiasm with worldwide persecution. But this time it's relating to those in Judea. I think he's talking about the 144,000 Jews marked out to spread the gospel during the seven-year period time of Jacob's distress and all their converts. These people, the people who get saved because of the testimony of the 144,000 Jews, will refuse to worship the Antichrist, and they will refuse to give up their religion once he declares himself to be God, the abomination of desolation, and therefore they will be hunted down and persecuted. Point B2, what's the preliminary, preliminary event to this persecution of the Jewish people? Again, it appears to be the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist breaks the treaty with Israel and stops worshiping God. This is in Daniel 9, verse 27. And then he finishes up 
with the false messiahs and says basically the same thing he did when he started this uh, portrayal of the chiasm of future events to answer the disciples' questions. So, as you can see, he's created a chiasm that gives us a lot of information. Not only does it show us what's going to happen before the rapture, but it also shows people who are left, the name of the Jewish people, the 144,000, everybody who's left during that seven-year period of God's judgment, what's going to happen. And all of it centers on the rapture, which is the prophetic chief sign, the keystone sign of prophecy. Now, we understand it from our standpoint. He's given us the seven seals, and when we start seeing the seals being cracked open, especially a worldwide persecution, he, we've already learned in Revelation chapter 6 and what Jesus said in the beginning of Matthew 24 to look forward to his coming. But this will also help the Jewish people. You see, not only did Antiochus Epiphanes just, you know, take the temple and desecrate it by slaughtering a pig in it, the abomination of desolation. But in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And so how does the Jewish people who have not yet believed in Christ, how are they going to know who the false Messiah is unless Jesus gives him a sign? Because if it's just somebody declaring themselves that they are God, other people have done it in history. If it's just because someone starts persecuting them, well, they've been persecuted throughout history. In the 20th century, Hitler is, comes to mind and the great persecution they had then. But Jesus wants to make sure that they understand that this is close to his coming. Remember the two questions what, that he answers? What's the end of the age? and also the sign of your coming. So he wants to make sure the Jewish people know the Messiah is soon to come. And so he gives this prophecy a linear fashion when it comes to time elements. It's a true chiasm, but he's adding the part of time, different elements, different time periods. You see, the way the Jewish people will know the false leader that's first fixing to persecute them, is that it'll happen after the rapture. There's been lots of false leaders and lots of people persecuting them, but none of them happened after all these people disappeared from earth and were taken up into heaven by Jesus. So by having the reference point of the rapture, the Jewish people will know when that person stands up that and declares himself to be the false messiah, or a messiah. They'll know that he's the false messiah. And when he breaks their treaty, they will know this is the one that was foretold about by Jesus. And then they will know that the persecution is coming, and that they shouldn't even run back to their house to get their stuff, but they need to leave immediately to escape it. That's why Jesus has set this up in a chiasm. And that's why he is showing us that the rapture is truly the number one, most important, chief, keystone sign of the end times. Because the rapture is what is the sign of his coming to set up his kingdom.
and the events leading up to the rapture are the signs for the believers to get ready for the rapture. So what can we draw from all of this? Well, I think we have shown in, in Revelation and with all these other different areas of the Bible we've looked at and looking at the feasts of the Lord, that the seven seals are indeed the last days of the church. The fifth seal being a worldwide persecution of Christians before the rapture, and the sixth seal being the rapture itself. And another phrase is interesting from Peter, one of the disciples that heard the Matthew 24 lecture and the chiasm involved. Peter writes this, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin first among God's own children. And if even we Christians must be judged, what terrible fate awaits those who have never believed God's good news? You see, Peter says right then and there that when the end comes, when judgment comes, it must first start with the people of God. And we've talked about this verse before. Before God will judge the world for all its evil in that seven-year period of time called Jacob's distress, that seven-year period of time of God's judgment on the world, before he does that, he first purifies his church and gets them ready to be his bride when he comes and gets them in the rapture. And he uses the problems and the the, the terrors and the the struggles, I should say, of the seven seals to help test us and purify us so that when the persecution comes, we will stand like godly Christians and spread the gospel to all the world. Because see, then we are the chosen elect and we have been given a special assignment to spread the gospel before the rapture. So, that is how Jesus set it up. And a lot of people will sit there and say, I, I don't like this, Todd. I, I don't want us to have to go through bad times before Jesus comes back. I don't like what's going on in our nation. I don't like anything that's going on. I just want him to come back and take me home before there's any trouble. Well, that's just not the way he's got it planned, is it? If we live to see Jesus come back, whatever generation is alive when Jesus comes back for his bride and, and for the rapture, you got to realize that generation has been given a special job. They've been selected to spread the gospel throughout the whole world. And that is a very important job and one that we shouldn't take lightly and one that we should not treat with disdain. But we should be proud that he's calling us worthy to spread the gospel and to warn the people of the world before he comes back. Jesus sums up all that he's taught in Matthew 24 with the following verses. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 51. And these are pretty self-explanatory, so I'm just going to read them, and you can follow along with the graphic on the screen. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 51. Now, I learned a lesson from the fig tree. When its buds become tender and its leaves begin to sprout, you know without being told that summer is near. Just so, when you see the events I've described beginning to happen, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. 
I assure you, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will remain forever. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken the other left. So be prepared because you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Know this, a homeowner who knew exactly when a burglar was coming would stay alert and not permit the house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Who is a faithful and sensible servant to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his household and feeding his family? If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I assure you, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But if the servant is evil and thinks my master won't be back for a while and begins oppressing the other servants, partying and getting drunk, well, the master will return unannounced and unexpected. He will tear the servant apart and banish him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I encourage you, don't despair. Instead, do like Jesus said. When you see these things happen, get excited. Remember how we talked about this was the same words he used for the wedding ceremony of the Jewish people? This is what the Jewish people use in their wedding ceremony. So he's, he's equating it to a wedding. He's saying, look, get excited. Be looking for me to come when you see these signs. And, and then he, he kind of encourages us. In verse 42, he says, be prepared. You don't know what day I'm coming. See, we as Christians need to realize in the last days, we'll see in, at large the, the hypocritical, the worldly, the apostate church but also there will be that small group, the remnant of true believers. And we as believers need to forsake all the lies of the apostate religion. And we need to prepare ourselves for the greatest evangelistic thrust in the history of the world. The fifth seal, the persecution that allows us to take the gospel to every corner of the world, to make sure everybody hears it before Jesus comes for his Christians in the rapture. So we don't need to despair. Instead, we need to start training ourselves to look forward to this blessed event and get excited about it like a bride gets excited about her wedding. And secondly, we need to prepare now. We don't need to wait until we start seeing these events happen because then our faith will be weak and our endurance will be weak and we may choose to walk away instead of keeping the faith. No, prepare now. Just like we talked about, thank God for every hardship you're going through. Count it all joy, like it says in James, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
So start training yourself now. Allow God to test you now. Allow God to strengthen you now, prepare you now. So when it happens then, you will be like that warrior, that soldier that's chosen, eclectos, elected for a special mission. And you will be one of the Christians elected for the mission of taking the gospel to everyone you can during the days of dark persecution. And that is something that you can be proud of when you meet the Lord face to face in the clouds when he comes and gets you. So train yourself now to be a competent Christian and look forward to when Jesus comes back and gathers all his Christians together in that blessed event that we commonly call now the rapture. So that concludes our study of the first part of the book of Revelation, the first third of that book. And there was a lot of meat in there. A lot We had to spend a lot of time on because the veil is being lifted. And these events, I think, are close to happening. Now, the next session, we'll start in with the seven-year period of Jacob's distress, the seven-year period of God's judgment. And that will move a whole lot faster because a lot of those events are still veiled. And there's not a whole lot of revelation in Scripture to talk about that other than those passages in the book of Revelation. And we'll start that next session. So until then, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.